podcast this week on oh, 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 I'm all shook up oh, oh, oh. Yes, the grabber is here As the new Scott Derrickson film The Black Phone hits cinemas And also oh, oh, hey, hey, I'm all shook up That's right, Brian Cranston and Annette Benning Are the stars of the new Paramount Plus movie Jerry and Marge Go Large But also Elvis has entered the building and we talk to the brand new king of rock and roll, or man, he's playing the king of rock and roll, Austin Butler, who stars in a new Baz Luhrmann film, Elvis. There you go. Nailed it in one. (laughs) I thought you were having a fit for the moment, Chris. (laughs) I do know more than one Elvis song, I, 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 I promise you. Anyway, all that and more on the movie podcast, whose favourite Elvis song is... The very best of Elvis Presley. Oh my god. Yes, a little Alan Partridge nod for you there. Hello, Pod. I'm Chris Hewitt, and welcome to this week's Empire Podcast, which, because of the train strike uh, that is happening right now, means that we are back once again in the virtual pod booth. Praise be to Squadcast. And uh, I am joined for this podcast by three. Colleagues of such lethal cunning. James Dyer can't be here this week. Oh! <laughs> <laughs> uh, he is, he's got builders around, and it's mm. not a euphemism. Uh, actual builders who are making lots of noise. And I was like, ha ha ha, sucks to be you, Jimbo. Woke up this morning, there are builders outside my flat also making noise. It's a conspiracy, <laughs> I tell you. It's a conspiracy. Uh, anyway, people who don't have builders outside include our geek queen, Helen O'Hara. Hello. How are you? How hello, hel- hello, <laughs> Helen. I've forgotten you have. It's so long since you've been on the podcast regularly, but with your gallivanting around the country, hey, uh, that I've bit. forgotten how to like, interact with you. So, mm. hello, Helen. Read notes. How are you? <laughs> I am. I am well, thank you. Yes, I'm freshly ungallivanted, and it's been, it's been great <laughs> getting back into it. Yeah, back on terra firma. Indeed. Yeah. Well, they have terra firma also in you know Ireland and Scotland. <laughs> what? Yeah. What? So terra that firma. Was helpful. Right, okay, good. Uh, we are also joined by the best-dressed man in film journalism, brackets, Watford Division. <laughs> it is, of course, the one, the only, Amon Warman. Hey there. Hey, hey well, that's new. Hey there. Uh, <laughs> how you doing? How you doing? What are, what are you wearing? Oh, God. <laughs> Chris, we've talked about this with HR. Chris, you do know Helen and I are here, right? <laughs> we, 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 we can, Guys, just, we can just hear mute what yourselves for a second. <laughs> What are you wearing, Amon? I'm wearing one of the most incredible, amazing shirts from Primark. No, it's just a <laughs> <laughs> it's just a red t-shirt today. I'm dressing down. Okay, all right. I might have to, you have been downgraded to the best dressed <laughs> film journalist in Britain. Brackets Amon Street Division. <laughs> yes. Close brackets. What do I win? I mean, you don't live in the same street as another film critic, right? As far as I if know, if you lived next door to Kim Newman, you'd be fucked. <laughs> By the way, there is no competing with Kim. I have seen him in an opera cloak. Yes, it has oh, happened. Yes, indeed. So. He has crossed oceans of time to find us. Uh, speaking of people who've also crossed oceans of time, it's a terrible segue, but I'm going with it. It is our very own the Grabber, <laughs> the nicest serial killer in the business, Ben Travis. Hello, how are you? I'm good. Can I show you a magic trick? <laughs> <laughs> no, thank you. 
No, it's okay. Are you sure? No, I have, thank you. I have We're all good. I have treats. No, I have a no, big no scary black van. Yeah. Mm, no, thank you. Yeah, I noticed. I noticed Ben, your fam has parked outside my flat today. <laughs> just no, thank you. Just like seeing what you're up to, Chris. I like, just like seeing what you're wearing. <laughs> Hello. Hello. <laughs> what ben. are you wearing today, Ben? Well, someone else's skin, if I'm honest with you. But anyway, anywho, anywho, ha ha ha, fun and games. Um, so you're all here. You're all good. I'm very, very excited about that. Should we have a question? Sure. Why not? How are you, Chris? How are you? Yes. Thank you, Helen. Thank you. <laughs> no one ever asks because I suspect no one ever really cares. <laughs> but perhaps if we all took the time and the trouble to ask ourselves about each other, then maybe we'd be a little bit better. Maybe this country would be wow. a little bit better. Don't wow. you think? So mm. inspiring. That was deep. Mm. Makes you think. Really makes it you does think. does make you think, doesn't it? <laughs> what if God was one you know? of us? Just a slob like one of us. Just a slob like one of us. Just a stranger on the bus. Did? Which yeah. is what everybody will be taking today in support of the strikes. I'm good, by the way, Helen, the, good. in answer to, God, your, in answer to your question. I'm, I'm hot, and I don't mean in the sexual sense. Which I obviously uh, goes without like saying. Well, I like to give, you know, <laughs> who knows? Who knows where this podcast might develop over the next hour or so, but uh, I'm very hot. I'm, I had to close my window because of the, the work band clanging and banging, and it's obviously going to be, what, 28 degrees or something like that today, and so I'll be honest with you, I'm a little bit sweaty, but this is my cross to bear, and we move on. Uh, the question is... This week, it came in uh, response to one of my panicked shout-outs a couple of weeks ago, and I uh, I definitely did like it, so it's going to show up on my Twitter any second. Now, here it is. I think this is a good question because it pertains to something that we are obsessed with at the moment. The question comes from Belgian underscore Jedi, <laughs> Belgian <laughs> Jedi on Twitter, with Chris becoming a new dad to Ben. <laughs> it's true, I forgot. I forgot. Me too. That's why Ben's van was parked outside my flat, because Ben is now my son. It's a, my van full of stuff. Chris, when am I moving in? <laughs> well, Ben, you, I'm just... You know, ben, could you keep your grabbing down, please? <laughs> it's too much noise. We need to soundproof that cellar. Uh, anyway. This is so Dexter. Could, could Chris take inspiration from the movies on how to do it well? Who would you say are the best parents you've ever seen on film. My vote, and this is Belgian Jedi, mm-hmm. my vote goes to Miles Morales' parents from yes. Into the Spider-Verse. Oh, that is. He's just playing to the crowd. He knows you're probably <laughs> going to be here, Amon. It's just, that's just the easy option, isn't it? That's the easy A option. But, um, oh, oops, oh, I think I've given away one of my answers. Option. I don't miss it, though. We'll, we'll, we'll dig into that in a second. But the reason I like this question was that we've done we've done, probably done best movie mums, we've probably done best movie dads in the past. I'm not sure how often we've done best movie parents, but great parents are on my mind at the moment because of Miss Marvel mm. and uh, Kamala Khan's uh, incredible parents in that, Maniba and Yusuf, uh, who are just an absolute delight on that show. And um, we said on our Miss Marvel spoiler special that I would very much like them to be my real parents in real life. Thank you very much. And for me, they are the <laughs> best on-screen parents, uh, counting both movies and TV shows, since Stanley the Tooch, Tucci and Patricia Clarky Clarkson in Easy A. Mm, they're fantastic in that movie. I love them. Yeah, that, that's my go-to answer as well, unhelpfully. I feel like I've been gazumped here. Sorry about that. What about um? What about uh, Anakin and Padme? 
Uh, they're they're good parents, <laughs> don't you think? Um, Chris hasn't seen the end of uh, Revenge of the Sith yet, has he? He got like halfway through, <laughs> and he was like, Anakin, he's going to save Padme. He's using the dark side yeah. to do it. It's all going to be fine. It's going to be great. Yeah. If you turn off Revenge of the Sith halfway through, it's uh, it's a heartwarming love story. About Obi-Wan and a big lizard? <laughs> Obi-Wan and a big lizard. Hello there. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> that was the big lizard. Hmm. That was very good, Ben. Very, was, uh, very good. Was that big lizard? It sounded like a bird, I guess. Yeah. Different so to be fair, that lizard does kind of sound like a bird. That's fair. That's fair. Uh, I'm on in the same way I can't just simply say uh, in fact I don't think I can do go to any of my go-tos for this I can't go to Evil Dead 2 or Event Horizon um, or Top Secret for this because quite frankly there are very few parents in those movies and if they are in there they're rubbish mm. so no. you know so you should be banned from saying Spider-Verse but, but that's talk about Spider-Verse <laughs> why are those parents for you and Belgian Jedi the best ones Miles Morales' mum and dad yeah, they're, they're just very, very understanding. They're always there for Miles, even without knowing the full scope of what's going on with him. Um, especially the dad, they're, that really sort of heartwarming father to son. I wouldn't quite call it a conversation because Miles isn't replying, but through the door, one of the best sort of father-son moments that I've seen uh, in any sort of mm. animated film, live-action film, was just really, really powerful. So that is the first thing that sticks out to me. It's also just funny. <laughs> um, mm. that, that, that line where uh, Miles' dad has taken him to school and makes him say, I love you in front of everyone <laughs> before going in. It's like, that's a copy. That's a copy. That gif I've used a lot in the ensuing years. It's, been, it's fantastic. So yeah, um, lo- love, those, love those parents. They're great. I, I do have a couple of other answers, actually, that I have now remembered. Mm-hmm. Um, Mitchell's versus the machines yes. while we're on the animated time. That is a, a, a parent, a set of parents who are really doing their best for their kids and who are dedicated to each other and dedicated to their kids and, and yes, figuring some things out at times, but generally very, very good parents. Especially by the end of that film as well, like you get oh. Rick uh, getting to deploy the, uh, the the screwdriver that he's been carrying around the whole time when he teams up with Katie yes. and they're blasting robots in the sky. Yeah. Linda has become the purple one, ripping hearts out of robots' chests. They they I feel like they start off as like parents who are trying their best, but but not necessarily doing the right thing, and then by the end, they've just everyone in that film has leveled up, but especially Rick and Linda. What a pair! Yeah. What a pair. Yeah, that's a good one. Um, Also, The Fault in Our Stars. I don't know if you guys have seen this film or remember this film, but the storyline with her parents is the biggest heartbreaker in that film. Her big worry through a lot of that film is that parents of teenagers or children who who die of serious illness, uh, like the one she suffers, uh, often split up uh, and often can't sort of recover, can't get past it. And that's her big, big worry in the film. And one of the kind of big emotional moments of the film is when her parents basically say, we're, you know, we are working on this. We are going to be okay. We have a plan. We are training to support other people through this. And it's just devastating, but it's also incredibly, incredibly loving. It's an amazing moment. Uh, anyone else? Any more Any more movie parents? Because I think parents, movies tend to focus on one half one of the half, parental yeah. unit. Or oh, well, there are loads of movies, obviously, that don't even address the idea of parents where our characters arrive fully formed. Um, so, but, but actually having movies that have both parents uh, in play, that's, that's kind of 
not rare, but it's it's more off the beaten path, I would say. I think especially in terms of like adventure stories, because so often those characters, your hero character often comes from a place of like being an orphan. You think of Harry Potter or Luke Skywalker, that it's part of the hero's journey as the person who kind of is on the back foot, who hasn't had that upbringing, kind of getting to go on this adventure and find those things along the way. So feels like a lot of, uh, yeah, especially like adventure stories, action movies tend to focus on characters who don't have parents or who have a singular parent. If I, I didn't realize we were doing just, uh, like, well, like full sets of parents, but uh, onward, the mum in Onward, I think is a great character. Obviously, you also have the dad's legs. Does that count? <laughs> Elf mum and, and leg dad. I think in terms of Pixar, Inside Out is a good shout. Yes. Yeah. Uh, Riley's parents in Inside Out are really trying their best. Um, yes, they're kind of you know preoccupied with every other thing going on at the beginning, but they they're there when she needs them at the end, and there's a real bond there. A moving like, house is extremely stressful. Who can blame them? Mm. Uh, yeah. But still, broccoli on pizza. I I, I struggle. <laughs> I struggle. What about ice cream pizza? Yeah. Are you okay with that? What? Which is ice cream on pizza? How does that work? What, like, what, like when they put a burrata or an egg on a pizza and it's just what plopped in the middle? What's how does that work? I don't really know. Is because the, the, the ice cream is surely melt, right? So this is again, and this is another Miss Marvel reference, but this is something yeah. that a character refers to that they like, and uh, they like ice cream pizza, which just sounds wrong. Yeah, but maybe it's one of those like dessert pizzas you see in certain places where they like, yes. just chuck on some Nutella and it's some like ice cream on a pizza base. Often is involved oh, in that. Four, four. Ooh. Now you're talking. When I had my graduation meal, uh, when I finished uni, I went to an Italian restaurant and had uh, pizza as my main and then had a dessert calzone as my dessert. I had a two pizza (laughs) meal. It was a lot of bread. Too much bread. (laughs) Are we restricting this to movies, by the way? The movies only, not TV? It, it, well, the question was movies, uh, even though um, Kamala's parents are obviously on the small screen at the moment, but we know the Marvels is coming up, and if they're smart, they will put them in the Marvels as well. In fact, if they're smart, the Marvels will be about nothing but them and Kamala <laughs> Khan, and all of the characters will recede into the distance. That's would what watch. I would I would recommend. Uh, I mean, not to say that Carol Danvers and uh, Monica Rambeau are not great. They are, <laughs> but they're not Kamala Khan and her mum and dad, so... <laughs> There you go. Uh, any other movie parents? Ben mentioned the the Harry Potter thing, where obviously his mum and dad are, are a bit shit, quite frankly, uh, because they just get to turn up every now and again and and kind of stare uh, moon faced and doe eyed at their kid in a, in a in a mirror or a painting I mean, or something like that. I mean, they're they're rubbish, aren't they? In fairness, they did die saving his life. That's what we're told. His mum's love for him <laughs> is his ultimate power. Come on, Chris. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, wow. The Waynes? Yeah. What about the Waynes? No. no. No to the Waynes. No. <laughs> they died so their son could live and become the ultimate instrument of vengeance. And they died repeatedly. So many times. <laughs> so many so many sets of pearl necklaces. Yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. Hey, steady now. <laughs> I've got one. Yes. The Incredibles. Yes. <laughs> Elastigirl especially is great. Helen's great, but, but Bob is, you know slightly disengaged and <laughs> moderately ineffectual to be honest uh, i i don't i don't think they're the best parents in the world 
again, I feel like they're they're flawed but trying. They're on the uh, the Linda and Rick Mitchell end of like chaotic (laughs) but doing their best, I guess. Especially in Incredibles Two, which I I don't love as much as the first film, but I did like that switch in dynamic where uh, it's uh, Elastic Girl who's off saving the world, and then you have Mister Incredible (laughs) at home just struggling to do anything in the house. He is just rubbish (laughs) at everything, uh, but in a very endearing way. I feel like equally flawed but well-intentioned parents should we talk dune like lady jessica <laughs> yeah. uh, and yep. uh duke leto atreides i mean they are I, duke leto is loyal to a fault he he is <laughs> unable to foresee things that maybe he should be foreseeing or, or find a way to act around them uh but i, I feel like they both have done a good job of of bringing Paul up. I say this as somebody who doesn't know what's coming in June Part Two. <laughs> Maybe they do a horrible job of parenting him, and he turns into a right bastard. But he seems like he's got a good head on his shoulders, you know. Mm. I think they've done a good job. I think they've made a good start. But actually, I think what's interesting about Paul Atreides is he is the son of many fathers, and he gets a lot from Gurney Halleck, and he gets a lot from Duncan Idaho, and he gets a lot from you know, Stilgar ultimately, um, spoiler for June 2, you know, he he is, he, it's not just uh, Leto and Jessica. The other, the only thing I think about that, I, th- I agree with you, I think they're actually very good in terms of like setting a good example and giving him a good grounding in life and giving him a good character, a sense of, sense of ethics and everything else. Um, they are slightly at odds, which I think is in contrast to most of the good parents that we're talking about. She is teaching him the weirding way and the Bene Gesserit lore, kind of without Leto's, maybe not permission, but like without making an issue of it, certainly, to Leto when he's around. So they're not quite aligned in their parenting goals, is my only note about them. But they're pretty awesome parents. I mean, no, if we're talking hottest parents, like they'd be, they shoot right up to the top of the list. You know what I mean? That's. yeah, that's a that's a very very good point. It's a very different um, question. It is a very very different question. Spielberg's interesting in this because Spielberg, uh, I think this is something that he's going to address directly with the Fablemans. But mm. Spielberg's parents divorced when he was quite young, and that is something that you that kind of is reflected in a lot of his films. A lot of his films are about the the splintering and the fracturing of the of the family unit. And I'm trying to think back to to a lot of his movies. That usually will be a single parent or no parent at all, or one half of the parental unit has uh, uh, has died. Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade, for example, we never get to meet Indy's mum. We only get to meet his dad uh, in E.T. It's you know Elliot's uh, is raised by his his mother. The the father isn't on the scene. That's really really interesting. Interesting mm-hmm. to me, and um, you know, in the Fablemans, I think we're, he's going to address that in a sort of a semi-autobiographical way. But in Jaws, yeah, in Jaws, there we have we have the uh, we have the Brodies together as as a, as a unit. Obviously, the film focuses by and large on Chief Brody, on Martin Brody. But Lorraine Gary's in there as, as Ellen Brody to the point where she takes over the franchise when uh, for mm-hmm. Jaws: The Revenge, when that shark gets ideas above its station. I I mean there's a lot of tension in that household though. I feel like there's they they are good parents, especially he heads out on the boat, he's gonna go and kill the shark. But there's in those house scenes you feel a lot of, of stuff going on bubbling under the surface with their relationship. But I can think you, of some Spielberg. Think? 
Well, at least they didn't have the the affair that they had in oh, the book. Oof, yeah. 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 So she way. has an affair in the book and, and it just would would yes. have sucked all the oxygen out of the tanks. Yeah, in case people don't know, she it's not just that she has an affair in the book, she has an affair with Hooper. With Hooper. In the book. Ooh, uh, ouch. And uh Hooper actually dies <laughs> in the book as well. Uh, I'm glad that those were those were cut out. I don't even think addressed uh, for mm. for the film. Hooper dies, presumably shot by Chief Brody, who's like, "Why, why are you having an affair with my wife?" <laughs> then he feeds him to the shark. That's my yeah, yeah. It's death by shark. He uses a shark as a murder weapon. But I I can think of a set of parents in a Spielberg movie who. Uh, have done a very good job of raising their kids who are extremely loyal, who do whatever it takes to get their kids out of danger and save the day. I know what you're going to say. I'm, of course, talking about the T-Rex parents from the Lost World, Jurassic Park. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Mommy's very angry <laughs> and she's coming to save her little T-Rex baby who should not have been taken into the RV by Sarah. They are good. That, I feel like that says a lot about Spielberg's sort of parent <laughs> issues. The best parents in his movies are the T-Rexes. In the second well, Jurassic the best Park. set of parents, anyway. Yeah, yes. he's got he's got very very good single parents. To be fair, <laughs> I was yeah. trying to think through old movies, and I'm having trouble thinking of really great parenting because George so much Bailey. of it is a bit dodged. Yeah, George, the the Baileys were my first mm. instinct because yeah. old Pa Bailey uh, really means well. He puts you know he he puts he asks George to join the family business, but he does accept his wish to go elsewhere and do something else with his life until, of course, you know he dies. Oops. Um, Oops. <laughs> the couple that actually comes to my mind, though, were the Minivers in Mrs. Miniver. So the oh, Greer yeah. Garson World War II film that Churchill said was worth a battleship on its own. And it's just a kind of <laughs> idealised uh, view of British small town life. Um, the climax of the film is basically, uh, well, not the climax, but the, the, the big action set piece, if you like, of the film is him going off in one of his, in his little boat to help the evacuation at Dunkirk, them them kind of just taking part in the war effort selflessly and helping out their neighbours and everything else. Uh, but they are kind of lovely. So that's that's the one yeah. that comes to mind there. Uh, we're talking about Steven Spielberg produced movies. Um, the parents in Transformers <laughs> are, are, are really fun until they, they stop being fun because mm. uh, in, in subsequent sequels, they realise that Kevin Dunn and Julie White's characters were so much fun that they started giving them shit to do to the point where they became mega annoying and, mm-hmm. <laughs> and stopped being fun. Uh, and mm-hmm. quite honestly, Mark Wahlberg and Rose Byrne in Instant Family because that movie kind of, is, you know, I'm very close to that connection, that, that situation right now. So I glommed onto that film uh, hard. So yeah, mm-hmm. those two. The poets from Coming to America. King Jaffe Joffair, played by James L. Jones oh. and Matt Sinclair's <laughs> Queen Amy. Who, like, you have a father, a king, who would stop a wedding mid-wedding to allow you to go to America and have the best holiday ever. I mean, that's awesome parenting right there. And then, without Mad Sinclair, uh, without Queen Eleon's, you know, smartness and willingness to challenge the king um, at the end with that fantastic line, I thought you were the king, uh, which sort of spurs the decision to, you know, forget the rules, you can marry this woman. That's awesome parenting right there. I love those guys. The parents in Bob Balaban's parents, who are cannibals, uh-huh. and perhaps are the parents of the grabber. Who knows? We may <laughs> never know. We may never know. 
cracking black comedy if you've never seen it. Mm-hmm. Uh, anyway, that is it for this question section. If you want to have your question read out in the Emperor podcast and treat it with the respect it deserves, as at Belgian underscore Jedi found to their cost this week, you can get in touch with me on Twitter. I'm at Chris Hewitt. Slide into my DMs if you want, or you can reply to any of my tweets or wait for a panicked shout out every now and again. Anyway, now it is time for this week's movie news, of which there's not a lot, I think. Mm. So should we just skip straight to the review section? Or do you want to talk <laughs> I mean, about this week's movie we're news? We're not going to talk about Sean Mendes is Lyle Lyle Crocodile? <laughs> Surely the biggest news of our lifetime. <sighs> I mean... So, Sean Mendes is a, a popular singer. He sings the songs that are on the radio, yes. Uh, yes. And now he's singing the songs as a crocodile from a popular American children's book. This is, this is cool. as with Clifford the Big Red Dog, Americans trying to do Paddington uh, uh, now with a, a crocodile who lives in a flat in New York, but it's also a musical. And there's an entire scene in this trailer for Lyle Lyle Crocodile that has come out this week. That's why we're talking about this. That uh, is the crocodile in the bath. You, it's 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 so clearly trying to riff on Paddington, like just just let just let Paul King and let whoever that new guy is do the Paddington stuff, and uh, yes. leave it leave yeah. it for everyone else. But it's a, it's a good cast. This film, in fairness, it's Constance Wu, Scoot mm. McNary, mm. Javier Bardem are in there as well. So, uh, so you know, it's it it could be cool. Yeah, I'm I, I'm, I'm excited about it. I guess I don't know. Um, there's got to be better than that. There's got to be better news stories than that, Ben. That wasn't the that wasn't well, a banger to lead off with. Excuse me. I'm um, uh, in in James's absence. Maybe I may I be the first to say Dune. Dune. Oh my god! But at least you, you you did it so beautifully and Aww, melodically. That's so sweet. Uh, but no, Lea Sedu is joining um, Dune Part Two as Lady Margot, um, who is one of the ladies in waiting, I believe, of Princess Irulan. Who will be played by Florence Pugh? Florence Pugh. So is this a, a major role? Oh, because presumably it is. If you've got someone like Lea Seydoux to play it, I know nothing about Dune Part Two or where this could go. Apart from obviously the David Lynch film gives us a bit of a template, gives us a bit of a map for this. Does she have a a counterpart in that movie? Virginia Madsen, for example, is Florence Pugh's counterpart. But I in, don't remember in her in that movie. I barely remember her in the book. I think they've amped up her role a little bit, to be honest. I think, well, she's she's in some of the other books, but I don't remember her in Dune proper. Um, but she's married to Hazemir Fenring, um, who is head of a minor house, but it's tied to the emperor. And she's part of the Bene Gesserit, and she's dedicated to their plans, their bloodline. So... Mm-hmm. Um, she is, yeah, involved mostly through her Bene Gesserit role than her noble woman role. Well, Helen, I have to, of course, you know, get my dune splaining hat onto you and, <laughs> and correct you in your pronunciation of Bene Gesserit. It's Bene Gesserit, as we all know. That's what they say in the film. I've, I'm going to stick with what I've been saying for years. Helen <laughs> has been docked 10 dune points <laughs> uh, and is now only a dune fan class three as opposed to class four. I'm so sorry, Helen. I don't make the rules. I just enforce them. You, you your sandworm privileges have been revoked, entirely. Helen. I'm so sorry to tell you. <laughs> Uh, it's yeah. fine as long no as I've got spice the spice. No spice for you today, Helen O'Hara. <laughs> Look at the colour of my eyes. I've got more spice than any of you. Ha ha ha! What's wrong with your eyes? What's happening? They're blue. Are they? Are yeah. your eyes blue? Yes. I could have sworn your eyes were not blue. Wow. No. <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, uh, but that is that is more good casting for Dune Part Two. 
It's like the Dune Part 1 casting all over again, where it's like, you get a role in Dune, you get a role in Dune. Like, so many of that cast are still on the board for, for this one. Mm-hmm. And now what we have, Christopher Walken, mm-hmm. uh, Florence Pugh, Leia Seydoux, uh, Austin Butler? Is mm-hmm. he Fade Rowther? Yeah. He is, indeed. He, um, But I don't know whether he's going to be wearing a space nappy. Uh, in fact, we discussed that very, very briefly in our interview this week, which, if we had left this bit to the end of the news section, would have been a great Duh. segue. Into so Austin Butler, but sadly we didn't. Let's just pretend didn't. this was the segue and just continue to discuss the news. Or we could just wrap up the news section after two well, there's stories. A, there's a couple of other things we should mention. All right, because four minutes is probably not enough. Yeah, probably not. <laughs> we um, need to do more than four minutes. But uh, Guy Ritchie yes. has signed on to direct yes. the live yes. action, quote unquote, Hercules. No. <laughs> yeah. No, this is this is no this is not anything to do with the rock. <laughs> this is the Disney musical Hercules. Um yes. one of their underrated, I would say, um uh, animated movies from the 90s. Mm-hmm. And so there's a lot of pressure on this to I think deliver in maybe like we've already had you know, Aladdin, and everybody knows Aladdin is a great movie. And so if he messed up the live action version, whatever. But I think the Hercules stands are, if anything, more passionate because they're like, no, people don't understand how great this is. You should love Hercules. And therefore, there's more pressure on this, I think, live action remake to justify the fervor of the fans mm. and, and, and explain to a wider audience what is so great about Hercules, because it has some of the best songs of the Disney canon, I think. 100% yes. Honestly, <laughs> I messaged this to uh, Helen and a few friends last week. The most important thing with this oh, why, film- why, Was I not on that group, Amon? Uh, were no, you on the group? You were I not was on not this on particular that group. group. I'm just no, you're not on that group. No. <laughs> Chris, we'll start our oh, own okay. group where we just talk about Hercules, even though I saw it once when yeah. it came out. You literally have your own group. <laughs> We're not in. Yes. We're what a lot of group you? that you're not in. What, what group are you not Wait. in? You're in all my groups. In my heart. Oh, that's very kind of you. You guys have a group that nice. I'm not in. <laughs> anyway, Uh-oh. back to Disco what I was saying. <laughs> um, the muses in Disney's Hercules are awesome. And if they are uh, adapting this and keeping it a musical and keeping the songs and everything else, the casting mm-hmm. of the muses is super important. They cannot get that wrong. So people, for people who don't know, they are a literal Greek chorus, as in yeah. they sing choruses and they move the story along, yeah. and they are fabulous yeah. in the animated version. Bangers all over the place in the music in that film. I feel like that casting must surely already be locked because the uh, music video for Lizzo's single last year, Rumours, that was her and Cardi B, I think, was like based <laughs> off the muses in Hercules. It's them as like Greek goddesses on urns, <laughs> like building out that song. So uh, yeah, yeah, if Guy Ritchie is looking at that for inspiration, Lizzo, Cardi B, you've got two of them in already. But I, I was wondering, are they going to keep this a musical? Obviously, like Guy Ritchie's Aladdin, they kept the songs in a way that they kind of didn't with uh, the the Jungle Book. And you think of, of Mulan as well. That was the other one that was like a sort of historical, mythological action epic. Yeah. They mm. lost the songs for that. And I think there would be people up in arms if they didn't do the Hercules songs, because I guess in a more niche way, they are beloved by people who kind of grew up on that film. But that mm-hmm. strikes me also as one of the stories that they could 
do the Mulan treatment and say, hey, let's just make this like a historical action epic instead. They might, but here's the thing. The live action songless Hercules that The Rock did was a bit meh and it wasn't that long ago. And hopefully they will want to make this stand apart mm. as much as possible, which would, and, and the songs would be a good way of doing that. So I'm hopeful it's Joe and, and Anthony Russo producing um, yeah. through Agbo and uh, Shang-Chi's writer Dave Callahan is, uh, wrote the first screenplay to this. So, you know, I'm hoping for good things, but yeah, casting is going to be really important. The muses are going to be really important. And now, you know, Guy Ritchie is in charge. I, I do have a slight worry. I think with the best will in the world, uh, his women historically have not always been great. And the women in this film are actually quite important. Meg is mm-hmm. Fantastic. one of the most memorable and interesting Disney heroines ever, possibly yep. anti-heroine. And you need someone who is going to treat her very seriously and not just as a super sexy chick, which she also is. So I'm just, I'm very, that that's my biggest wariness, not just the casting of the muses, but also making the women everything they can be. And he's he's up and down, isn't he, Guy Ritchie, as a mm. director? Uh, I, I like a lot of his films. Um, you know, I think he, when he, when he's, when he's on, He's really, really good, and uh, but he's not on, perhaps less so, shall we say? And uh, he's inconsistent as well. You could, you could argue, you know, Wrath of Man was really good, for example. Uh, but I, I, this is surprising to me because I didn't think that there was a great love for his Aladdin. Am I, am I wrong about that? Was there? I know it did, did well at the box office. Well, that's the thing. It made a billion, and therefore, I think that more than anything else is why he's in the director's seat for this film. Um, even mm. though uh, he would not have been my first or second or third choice, etc. <laughs> who would who would you choose? Who would be your first choice? I would choose somebody with a bit more whimsy. I mean, look, it's 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 boring to say Taika for everything, but you want someone with a little bit more of that kind of anarchic energy for me, right. anyway. For this, yeah. um, it, it, the Russes themselves actually could be quite fun mm. in sort of community mode. I think they'd be a very very good call for this. You know who would rock this? Damien Chazelle. I've forgotten who I was talking to. And you don't like La La Land, do you? I don't. I don't like La La Land. Yeah. <laughs> I, I also have concerns about his ability with female characters, if I'm honest. Oh, so well, he wouldn't that's, be top that, of my that's list. Not re, that's not. We're re, not going to go uh, back into it. No, I'm just, that's just what I'm just saying. That's my. Yeah. That's my issue. But I was going to say that's, that that would never happen. Something like that would never ever happen. And then I remembered that Barry Jenkins is doing the Lion King too. So <laughs> you never know. You never know. I'm very excited about that. I, I'm fascinated to see what happens, uh, what's that, what that's going to be like. But uh, but hey, let's move on uh, to something else. Interesting, cool news. A24 has a new thriller coming out called A Different Man. And Sebastian Stan is set to star alongside uh, the worst person in the world's Renate Rensva. So, um, so that's going to be presumably very, very cool. Yeah, he's um, an outsider who undergoes drastic facial surgery in an attempt to get a fresh start and then becomes obsessed with a man starring as him in a production about his former life. Blimey, blimey, O'Reilly. Um, one last thing I wanted to talk about in the news section was the trailer for Andrew Dominic's Blonde mm. hit last week. And, and uh, we've been very, very intrigued by this movie for a very long time because this is the adaptation of the Joyce Carol Oates book about Marilyn Monroe. It's not a... Uh, it's not, uh, it's not a biography. It is a novel uh, about Marilyn Monroe that's inside her head an awful lot. Uh, and this is an adaptation of that. And it stars Anna de Armas as Marilyn Monroe. 
And of course, there's been a lot of talk about this movie because it's a Netflix movie by Andrew Dominic, the director of obviously Chopper and the assassination of Jesse James by the coward Robert Ford, you know, a fantastic director. And he has been very, very adamant that this is going to be an NC-17 rated movie, which he explained to me and he's, he's done some uh, interviews with journalists over the last few months about other projects. And then he's got talking about Blonde. He's explained to me that that's because, not because it, this pushes the envelope in terms of what's depicted on screen sexually, but um, I think it maybe it, it doesn't hold back in terms of sexual assault and mm. things like that that Marilyn Monroe uh, suffered in her, in her life. Uh, so this is the trailer debut last week. Obviously, there's also been lots of people wondering how Ana de Armas is going to handle this role. Mm-hmm. Um, so far, from what I can see in the trailer, looks pretty damn good. Yeah, she, she looks, I mean, look, she's an amazing looking human being uh, anyway, and she looks amazing as as Marilyn. She looks incredible. But she also, she looks enough like her that, you know, you get the Marilyn-ness, um, but it doesn't look like being caricature either. She looks like she's got something of her... Of her incredible mix of of um, personality, which I think is why she's still so iconic. You know, that there's the vulnerability, there's the determination and the ambition, um, there's the incredible talent for comedy and for for being a star. She worked so hard to hone herself into the star that she became, and I think people tend not to credit her with that work in a weird way because she was just a beautiful woman, and they think, oh, she's just. That's how she became famous. She's just beautiful, but she worked very, very hard to achieve that level of fame and to sustain it. And I think that's something that this film seems to really engage with, which I'm quite excited to see because I just, I have Mm. never felt like Marilyn gets enough credit for everything that she was. And I hope this film is going to give it to her. And also, you know, yes, to show some of the stuff that she went through. For example, you know, she was always very, very adamant that she didn't use the casting couch. Uh, at a time when it was very much rumoured about her because of the way she looked. And she, uh, you know, was subject to sexual assault. And she did write about that in the 50s, like under her own name. Incredible. So it is it is about time she got some credit as the groundbreaker that she was. And I hope this does it. Yeah, I, I hope so as well. And uh, yeah, it's it's been released in September or October, something like that. So just in time for the Oscar season. I've got a, I've got a sneaky suspicion it might be uh, a, a player in the Oscar race. Uh, who knows? I'm remembering now something that Dominic said to me when I interviewed him for Chopper, and we got talking about Blonde, and you got talking about the NC-17 rating, and he was like, "There's nothing in our film that doesn't that hasn't been seen in any other film. It's just at this time, it's JFK doing it." Yeah, so there's lots of lots of reasons to keep your eye on this one. I would say. Hmm. Anywho, all this talk of Austin Butler, <laughs> wow, has got me in the mood to listen to an interview with Austin Butler. Look oh, at that. Where would we get one, Chris? <laughs> well, Helen, luckily enough, I have one in my back pocket because <gasps> Austin Butler is the star of this week's biggest film, I would say. It is Elvis. It is Baz Luhrmann's new film. And if you have pictured in your head what a Baz Luhrmann film about Elvis Presley is going to look like, you are absolutely right. <laughs> uh, and a couple of weeks ago, or a couple of months ago, actually, when the trailer for this came out, I... I'll be honest, I I took a look at it and I went, Austin Butler, he is a good looking guy, very, very clearly. He was great when in those brief scenes that he had in Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, where he plays Tex, one of the members of the Manson family who comes face to face 
uh, <laughs> and regrets it with mm. uh, with uh, Cliff and and Rick in that movie. But I just didn't see him as Elvis in that trailer. He doesn't particularly resemble Elvis facially in the way that, say, Kurt Russell did in the John Carpenter movie that came out just after Elvis died in 1977. And I was like, this guy's not Elvis. I've seen the movie now, and I am prepared to eat my words. Mm. Big old plate of humble pie uh, for me, because he is absolutely terrific in this film. And uh, so after I saw it, I was very, very excited to speak to Austin Butler, who captures Elvis brilliantly in such a way that even though he doesn't look like him, at times it was like, I'm watching Elvis, and this is really, really weird. Absolutely. Yeah. So uh, he uh, he's a very, very well-spoken, very, very thoughtful guy. And I chatted to him in an actual London hotel room a couple of weeks ago. So here is that conversation, me chatting to Austin Butler. Do please enjoy. We are delighted to be joined on the Emperor podcast by the star of Elvis, Mr. Austin Butler. How are you, sir? I'm so glad to be here. I'm very well. <laughs> How are you? I'm good. I'm good. I have to say, uh, when I saw the movie, I was a bit worried for your physical well-being because this seems like an incredibly arduous role. Mm. I mean, the movie covers Elvis's entire film career in about two minutes, and yeah. that seems like a lot of stuff to shoot. Yeah. So how tough was it for you to shoot this movie? It, it was. I've I've never worked harder. I um. Uh, it it was wild watching the movie the other day because I realized how certain things that I may have obsessed and worked endlessly on for six months went by in the blink of an eye in the film. Yeah. Or they were edited down to two seconds or something. <laughs> and, and then you just realize the amount of hours that go into every second of the film, every second of every performance. Yeah. And, and at the end of the day, the whole thing is you don't want to see the homework. You don't want to see the practice. You want it to feel like it's happening for the very first time right here in front of our eyes. Absolutely. So it, it, uh, for me, it was, it was this, these endless hours of studying and watching Elvis and listening to Elvis and, and experimenting with different ways of embodying that. And, uh, that was either recording myself and, and playing my voice back and then his voice and kind of comparing and doing that over and over and over. Or I, I you know, I had incredible coaches that I worked with in dialect, singing, karate movement. <laughs> uh, I had everything. And I love so, that. Yeah. I love that. Cause he was properly into his karate. Oh, he was, it was one of his greatest passions. <laughs> truly was there's amazing footage of him doing karate that you gotta see if you haven't seen it <laughs> somebody's done an edit online to kung fu fighting and it's and it's just one of the greatest videos <laughs> he contained multitudes did elvis yeah he, uh, he contained multitudes he, he really did and uh, i know that whenever you you first uh, got wind of this project that you sent a video of yourself singing Unchained Melody, presumably mm -hmm. the Unchained Melody that Elvis sang towards the end of his life. Is that yeah, the one you were? Yeah. yeah. Uh, have you looked back at that video recently? I've never looked back at the one that I did. That's interesting. No. Okay. Because I was wondering how far, how different your portrayal in that moment, yeah. trying to, you know, trying to audition, trying to catch Baz's eye, differs from the very, very final day you played Elvis. I'm, I, I, this interesting. I should look back at it at some point. I, that was, that was pivotal for me because it was, it was a moment where I'd been absorbing everything to do with Elvis. And my agent had said, you, you know, Baz has seen you act, but he hasn't seen you sing. So you should send him a song. 
So I was trying to come up with a song that I should send and I'm watching every bit of footage and I'm thinking, which era should I send a song from, et cetera. And I filmed Love Me Tender because mm-hmm. I thought, you know, it's his first film and, and there's him singing Love Me Tender. And, and so I, I filmed it and I watched it back and I just saw an impersonation. And so I right. didn't send it. Right. I thought there's no way that I can send this. I'm, I'm just, I can see myself. It's all external. And, um, and then I, and I've told the story before, but essentially I, my mom passed away when I was 23 yeah. and I had this, this awful nightmare that she was dying again and woke up from that. And Elvis' mom died when he was 23. And so th- that was this kind that was this connection. It was one of the first connections I had. And, um, and so I just, I thought, well, what if I just take this emotion, this, this very raw, truthful emotion that I have right here and put it into a song? And Unchained Melody was the first one that came to my mind because the lyrics, I thought, wow, this, I've, I've always imagined this to a romantic partner. This could be to a, a, my mom. Um, it, it also could be to his fans. It could be, there, there's so many ways you can interpret a song. But to me that day, it was, what if I just sing this right now to my mom? And I sat down at the piano and I just woken up and I, I just, and I wasn't thinking about trying to look like Elvis or, or, or anything. It just was emotion. And while eventually then I got very specific about his physicality and everything, Mm -hmm. that was, that became the foundation of it all for me, that, that song. Um, and that, that moment of, of realizing that it, it all had to come back to very human truths, very human emotion. I think not to give too much away obviously it's it's a it's a biopic so people know what what people know about elvis's life they know what happened to elvis um it's a song you sing in the movie it's a song that is performed in the movie and what was that like at what point in the process did you shoot that because it's a very different elvis and i wonder if the emotion that you were feeling on that day was the same emotion yeah that was that was towards the end of filming actually and so it was this really trippy full circle experience where that was the very first thing that I had sent to Baz and it was the foundation of it for me. And then suddenly here we are, I think it was in the last week or two of shooting the film. And now I've been living with that role for two years at that point. And, and it was, it was really surreal for me and, um, and, and quite moving because as well, there were, there were other things like the, the, what they lovingly refer to as the body adjustment suit that I was wearing. Um, <laughs> it, uh, I've never heard of this yeah, before. Yeah, That's... You, you zipped into this thing that makes you l- a lot larger and, yeah. um, and, and it constricts your ribs. And so I couldn't breathe fully. And, but when you watch the footage of Elvis, he can hardly get a breath in because he's also strapped into his jumpsuit at that time. Yeah. And so there's so many of these moments that are these parallels of extreme empathy that I felt for him and, and, and the feeling of when you watch him and he's struggling to get through a sentence, but then you see him sing and it's, and he just soars. Mm-hmm. It's this beautiful, powerful voice that comes out of him when he sings. And there's these little smiles that he gives throughout the performance where Priscilla told me the other day, she goes, you know, he was smiling and, and it was, it was what I had thought too. There's a couple different moments he smiles at, I think for our different reasons, but one of them, she says he smiles because he hit that note. 
because it was always a hard note for him to hit. And you see him give this little <laughs> smile afterwards. I thought that was really cute. That's what that's wild. I mean, there's there's some there's some great performances that are recreated in the uh, in the film. Uh, the comeback special, for example, you know, and the, oh, and the yeah. performance of "If I Can Dream," which I think now, having seen the film, was always on the on the borderline, on the cusp of being my favorite Elvis track, and mm. is now one hundred percent my favorite Elvis track. It's been in my head ever since. I Amazing. can't get out of my head, Austin. It is going around <laughs> my head constantly. But that's great. It's a good song to have going around your head. Yeah, uh, it is. But for me, there's a, there's a really interesting difference between the public Elvis, where you have to meticulously recreate his movements, his arm mm. movements when he's when he's singing, when he's pumping mm. up towards the end of "If I Can Dream," and the private Elvis. Mm. What was the difference between the two for you? How did you how did you find the private Elvis where there is no footage, where there is no obvious way in? Yeah, that that was that that was my fascination. That was that was the thing that I was really trying to find the most. And so for me, there were certain keys, like finding his anger. You know, you, you hear stories about his, he, the fact that he could snap in a moment and experience bouts of extreme anger. Mm -hmm. um, but you, but most of the time he's on stage or in front of a camera. And so he knows that he's being recorded. So he's not going to release that. There's two recordings. There's one of his girlfriend. It's probably about 59, 60. Anita Wood was his girlfriend and she's accusing him of cheating on her on the phone and, and she's pressing into him over and over and he's, he, he doesn't know he's being recorded. And so he's, he's, he's very polite and going, no, I didn't, no, I didn't, no, I didn't. And eventually he explodes at her and not, not horribly, but you hear how the shift can happen. So there's little things like that, that I would find that would suddenly be this gold mine of, uh, that that is like the seed that then can sprout inside for how to deal with how he deals with anger. Um, then then there's other things like the the little things. I mean, like we say, any any hero or, or, or any icon, you you can sort of almost forget that they just did the mundane things. And so for me, it it wasn't a matter of of like trying to do any sort of acting technique. I just I wanted to experience what, as the closest that I could to what he would have felt when he woke up or when he brushed his teeth or when, like those little things, how, how would he have ordered coffee? And so for me, it was like experimenting in the real world when the cameras aren't rolling. Mm. Um, so I tried to, I basically lived that way for two years, just trying to, so that way I didn't have the feeling, it was a lateral movement into action and cut you know yeah, yeah, yeah rather than me feeling like here i am austin and then suddenly i've got to go like okay now it's elvis time you yeah. know and 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 that feels like this massive shift and you get this it would feel inauthentic so i for me i didn't know another way but i because I, otherwise i thought i was just going to feel like a fraud as soon as you go into speaking as him or something so my, my thing was i just tried to merge that as much as possible for the duration yeah, because I've I've read various uh, interviews with with you and with Baz as well, and Baz says that he didn't know you weren't you weren't from the south <laughs> yeah, until yeah. until kind of after filming. Yeah. So you stayed very much in that in that zone. Yeah, because is... I'd had about a month 
prior to meeting Baz that I was doing nothing else but researching this. And so I'd already given over into, I, I don't know what I would have done if I didn't actually get the part. I would, it would have been so <laughs> tragic because <laughs> I'd been living with it for so long, but I, it was five months before I actually got the part. So and that I treated it like I already had it. So I, I was, I was obsessed. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> what about what about um, Baz during this period, this preparation period you know, before before day one uh, of shooting? Yeah. How how closely involved was he? Was he constantly checking in on you? Was he was he yeah. guiding you towards he what he wanted? He's he's incredibly involved and and a remarkable collaborator because he's his attention to detail and the amount of research. He has so many research assistants and. Um, if he doesn't know something, he's very honest about it. And then he goes out and he finds the information. And so we were able to bounce off each other so many ideas. And it was such a fun time because we, we would, I would send him a clip and of Elvis scratching his face or something. I go, why do you think he did that at that moment? And we'd go back and forth and, and find <laughs> these, these little things, That's you know, great. and, um, and I often say that Baz is, is the closest thing to a jazz musician in a director that I've ever seen. And, and Tom and I talked about that as well, because in order to play jazz, you have to know your scales inside and out. You have to know music theory like no other. But then once you're on stage and you're performing, there's this improvisation that's yeah. that's happening right now in this moment. Yeah. And that's how Baz is. He he works so hard and he lives it for so many years. And then finally you're on the day and he may say, let's change all the words in the scene. Or how about you sing a song you never sung before? And everything changes. And that that's so terrifying. <laughs> but Leo warned me before I started the film. He, he, he didn't warn me. He, he, he was saying how much he loves working with Baz. And he said, you're going to absolutely adore it. And he said, but I'll tell you, Baz is going to constantly keep you off balance, but it'll pull things out of you you never knew you had inside you. And so I thank Baz for that, for for constantly pushing me right to the edge of what I thought was possible. Wow. Is there a specific moment in the film where that yeah. applies? The first one I think of is um, the moment where we're rehearsing for the Vegas show. We'd had, we'd had a pre-recorded song that that was essentially the the creation of the vegas show so it's yeah. it's us singing that's right mama and uh and so it was to a click track there was a moment where the piano comes in for four bars and then the drums for this many bars and the trombones at this point and the singers at this point so we'd we'd been practicing it like a dance to that pre-recorded song then we got there on set and we did it once that way. And, and Baz kind of, I saw him there and he was, he, it was one of the first times I saw him not look fully happy. And my heart started to kind of flutter. And I was thinking, what's, what's happening here? And right. he goes, you know, I'm thinking they're all real musicians, right? And the musical supervisor, Elliot was like, yeah, yeah. But their, their instruments are muted. And he goes, what if we unmute their music, their uh, instruments uh -huh. and you do it live? And what if I tell all the musicians to purposely play the song wrong? And Elvis, you got to, you've got to, you got to correct them, correct them, yeah. and make them play the song you're hearing in your head, orchestrate them. Yeah, that was terrifying because suddenly I didn't have a safety net of this pre-recorded track, and so then we did it, and all the musicians it sounded awful the first time and I nearly and and then it sounds awful and then cut and then 
And, and so you feel like you're walking through mud or something. Right. And then, and then hair and makeup comes up to you. Everybody's touching. And, and then you're supposed to go into another take. And at a certain point I said, it's the only time I've ever almost had a panic attack where I said, you know, I need a second. I, I need to go into another room. And I went into another room for about 10 minutes and I had this pep talk with myself and I realized I don't need to do it how the track was. I don't have, there's no perfect out there. All that it is, is that I hear the music in my mind and I take as long as I need to with any one of those instruments until they get it right, because that's what Elvis would do. And so I went out there and if the piano wasn't right, I made him do it again. And I, and, and I, 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 it, it caused me to have to be the orchestrator in that moment. Yeah. And then suddenly it was this transcendental moment where I, I, I was completely out of my body and I felt like it, it was incredibly present. And, and Baz said that was one of his favorite scenes in the movie. Um, and Likewise. so I felt like we caught lightning in a bottle there through this, that experience. You know? That's amazing. Uh, so, so this immersion in the role, uh, and this immersion in the role of Elvis, Yeah. tell me that you didn't immerse yourself in the same way when you played a member of the Manson family. <laughs> <laughs> no, that was different. That was different. <laughs> you got to draw a line somewhere. I, I, uh, with that, I, you know, I did all the, all the work on research and Red Helter Skelter and, and did the, you know, I worked with a couple different dialect coaches on his voice and stuff, but, um, but no, the, 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 the most that I did was, uh, the, the closest thing to, to like living one of those moments was Quentin said, Hey, I want you to, uh, the night that we were walking up Cielo drive, he yeah. said, we were actually filming on Cielo drive. And he said, uh, and it was, a, it was the same time of year as like in August and, and, uh, it was two in the morning or something. We're doing a night shoot. And he says, you know, I want you to walk up the walk that they did because they parked at the, at the base of the hill and they walked up. It was so creepy and weird. And, and so I, I walked up and, and you, you're walking up and you're thinking, this is what the air would have felt like that night. Oh, this wow. is what the bugs sounded like in the bushes. This is what the wind probably sounded like in the trees. This oak tree was probably here at that time. And it starts being this weird feeling. And we're walking up this hill and then this guy who, who lives in one of the houses on the Cielo Drive walks out. And he, he so he, he lived in this little greenhouse there and he walks out and he goes, so you must be the killers. <laughs> and we're dressed in character and everything. And, wow. and I go, uh, I said, oh, well, that's, that's who we're playing. And he said, um, Sharon says you look just like Tex. And I looked down at his lapel and he has a Sharon Tate pin. And, and I realized that he is, feels like he's communicating with Sharon from beyond the grave. And he probably bought this house because he was obsessed with the murder. And he says, Sharon says you look just like him. And then, and then he goes, how does it feel to play such a piece of shit? And he starts going on and on and on. And, and at this point I'm like walking up Cielo Drive with this guy. And then I hear Quentin from down, down below and he goes, Hey, get away from them. Get away from them. Come here. Come here. And he, and he pulls the guy down. Like the guy walks down the hill. And I was like, what the hell? And then walk the rest of the way up Cielo Drive with chills on my body. And we finally get up to the top. And I just felt nauseous. It was just sickening. Um, yeah, it was really sickening. It was wild. 
Oh my God! Well, that's a yeah. that's a hell of an experience. That, that, <laughs> yeah. that is for sure. Uh, yeah, thankfully and- Quentin saved the day with that. <laughs> <laughs> Quentin to the rescue. Yeah. Uh, I've got to go in a second, Austin, but I, I've okay. got to ask about um, your next the next thing you're doing, which is June Part Two. Yeah, very excited about that. Oh, uh, man, I'm so excited. So uh, yeah, when when did you begin? I believe you've begun knife training and all that sort of stuff already. Yeah, I don't know how much I'm allowed to say about it. What I can say is that Denis is truly one of my favorite filmmakers in this world. I think he's one of the greatest we've ever had. And I am just so honored and thrilled to be working with him. Mm. And the entire, I loved the first movie and, uh, yeah. and I, I, I can't wait to see what he's going to do with this one. Um, a lot of people are asking, or a lot of people are wondering because yeah. you're playing the role played by Sting, of course, in the David mm-hmm. Lynch movie. Uh, are there going to be space nappies this time around? Space nappies. Space uh, nappies. No comment. <laughs> <laughs> That'd be a hell of a thing. It really yeah. would be. Uh, the last thing I'm going to ask you, Austin, is, uh, as I've said, if I can dream, is my Elvis earworm yeah. at the moment? What's yours? I have so many, and it, and it depends on my day. I uh, Let's see, this morning, because I needed some energy, it was feeling in my body. I love that song. I remember the first time hearing that I thinking, that I didn't know this is an Elvis song. Yeah. And then, and, and it's, it's got this, he, he, and the, the stacks recording, listen to that. Okay. There's, there's a great, they, uh, they, they made a new, with all these outtakes and stuff from the stacks recordings. And you can hear Elvis talking on it and stuff. There's a great recording of feeling in my body. All right. That's the one. Yeah, I'll check yeah, it out. Check it out after this. Uh, Austin Butler, it's been an absolute pleasure. Thanks, man. Uh, thank you so thank much, you. man. Okay, so that was Austin Butler talking about Elvis, and now it's time for us to talk about Elvis. Oh, uh, so Hell's Bells, tell us about this this whirlwind tour through Elvis's life, courtesy of Mister Basuel Lerman. Uh huh. Yes, this is a very much a whirlwind. I think through his life, and I think it's uh, it's good to make that clear because the first hour of this film really does not pause for breath as it trips through. You know, about what ten years of Elvis history would you say that first hour? Yeah, um, taking him from you know small town performances uh, on on local radio, right up to the sort of the peak of his uh, success or the first peak of his success at least. Um, so Austin Butler, as discussed, is Elvis and is astonishing. I have to say, in the role, um, mm. really, really impressive. But it's about really his relationship with Colonel Tom Parker played by Tom Hanks in a slightly unfortunate amount of uh, prosthetics, but generally quite impressive prosthetics, I will say, who promises to promote and manage him and take him to the heights of fame. But what you see in this film is how much Elvis kind of butted heads, frankly, with the colonel and how much the colonel became a drag on his career and not an aid to it. I don't know enough about Elvis circles to know if there's much controversy on this uh, explanation for mm. for some of Elvis's limitations in his later career, the fact that he didn't tour outside the US. Uh, but I feel from this film like there's a pretty clear answer, certainly in Baz Luhrmann's mind, to what went wrong at various points for Elvis. Mm. So, but this takes him from, as I say, from kind of zero through his um, uh, period drafted into the military, back into uh, start and back into the heat of the limelight and uh, through the wilderness years and off to his Vegas residency that kind of um, brought him money in again. Uh, it, mm. it, I don't think it's a particularly deep uh, portrayal of Elvis. This is not something that's incredibly introspective that gets you know deep, deep, deep into his head. But through 
you know, portraying his relationship with the colonel through portraying his relationship with Priscilla, played by Olivia de Jong, slightly glossing over the age that she was when they met, through his relationship with his parents, Richard Roxburgh's in there as his dad, Vernon, um, and and other musicians like Helen Harrison's B.B. King. You do get a little bit more of a rounder view of, of who Elvis was and what mattered to him, but I, I didn't feel like it was a particularly, yeah, like I say, introspective kind of... Uh, psychological biopic, if you like. This is very much more an introduction to Elvis and it will work very well that way, I think, for people who don't know him terribly, terribly well. It's extremely glitzy. It's extremely brightly coloured. It's extremely fast moving and fast paced. The The performance scenes are great um, and really get the energy and the excitement of what watching Elvis must have been like in those days. But yeah, so I'm 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 a I'm a mixed positive. But I thought that Austin Butler in particular is a is a star in this movie, and that really really comes across. Yeah, it feels to me a little bit like when we were watching. We talked about this in our Top Gun Sporter Special, which, by the way, is available to Sporter Special subscribers. I, I say that because it you know it becomes clear every now and again that some people don't know what's happened to our Sporter Specials. Uh, a guy wrote in this week going, "I thought your Sporter Specials had just stopped." And turns out they're behind, and these are his words, an absurdly reasonable paywall. Yes, that's right, folks. Just two ninety nine a month and just thirty two ninety nine a year will get you access to all our supporter specials, including an upcoming one on this very movie in which I interviewed Baz Luhrmann about Elvis. So there you go. Anyway, plug over. Back to what I was saying about this movie. Watching Top Gun Maverick, it feels like you're watching in Glenn Powell a new movie star being anointed. Mm-hmm. And in this movie, you're watching Austin Butler and it feels like if he plays his cards right and chooses his projects carefully, same with Glenn Powell, that we're watching someone that we're going to be watching as a movie star for the next 10, 15 years. Yeah. Because he's got it. He's just got it. Whatever it is, he has it. It's, you know, he's got the swagger, the X factor. He's a good looking guy. He can, he can sing. Doesn't do, doesn't do all of Elvis's focals in this movie, obviously. But, you know, I, I, I think he inhabits, this is a really difficult role to inhabit, by the way. Yeah, because because Elvis, there are so many impersonators and that's so the last thing you want to be. Was it? There's something like, I, I, I read, there's literally thousands of Elvis impersonators on the planet. Uh, like thousands, maybe even like, 100,000 Elvis impersonators on the planet. So to do something that goes beyond just mere impersonation and gives you a sense of the guy and you know and he's not he was not always a great guy especially towards the end of his of his life he was very volatile once he started to you know succumb to um his addiction to painkillers and 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 whatnot, and you know, once he once he isolated himself and insulated himself and shut himself away from the world, and he became very paranoid and obviously overweight and had health issues, and you know, he I think Austin Butler does a really good job of getting under his skin in mm-hmm. in those moments and making you feel sympathy for Elvis, which is very very important. There's a Spike Milligan's one of Spike Milligan's autobiographies was called Hitler, My Part in His Downfall. And I feel that uh, was about the time he fought in World War II. And I feel that this movie could be titled Elvis, My Part in His Downfall because mm. Baz Luhrmann frames it from the colonel's point of view. The colonel is, after Elvis has died, the colonel is basically dying himself and the whole movie is a fever dream about Elvis and everything is framed through the the Colonel's prism, which is interesting that we're watching this through the Colonel's eyes and yet the Colonel is still an unconscionable shit in this. So what about his self-image? There's there's something really interesting to get into there. But because of that, we get to see a little bit more the prison 
not prison, but the prison that he constructs around Elvis. And I think the most interesting parts of this movie are the parts where Elvis begins to push back against that. Yeah. So things like the 68 comeback special, which is for me the, the great triumph of the film, um, because that is one of the great moments in uh, music history of the last what was it now 50 60 years one of the last you know it's, it's one of the great moments uh it's one of the great performances his performance of if i could dream is one of the great performances of all time and that is wild it you know it's just a year apart from the the beatles singing on the rooftop of apple studios it's just it's absolutely wild um so the, the movie slows down i think it's genuinely really really good and it's it's far above, say, Bohemian Rhapsody and the, and the oh, recent yeah. sort of musical yeah. biopic yeah. Uh, stakes. I don't know. I think I preferred Rocket Man. I really loved Rocket Man with the creative swings that takes. But this is a Baz Luhrmann film, and so naturally he's taking wild creative swings as well. And because it's a Baz Luhrmann film, you kind of know what you're going to get, which is this frenetic first twenty to thirty minutes that just does not slow down. And if you're not paying attention, you're going to be fucked. Uh, but then. As with all his movies, eventually, Strictly Ballroom, I think, is the exception to this. Mm. But with all his movies, eventually, Moulin Rouge, Romeo and Juliet, Australia, Great Gatsby, Great Gatsby, Great Gatsby, mm. they all slow down eventually and get into the meat of the drama. And once that happens, for me, I thought this was terrific. So, yeah, it turned me around and I thought it was going to be a disaster. Uh, it turns out it isn't. Well done, Elvis. Yeah, no, I agree with all of that. Uh, Austin Butler, if he doesn't get an Oscar nomination out of this, something is wrong because... I mean, Taron didn't get nominated for Elton John. Mm -hmm. And something was wrong with that. Uh, <laughs> yeah, um, but yeah, there's, there's not a hint of any fakeness in his performance. And as you say, when there's so many impersonators out there to reach that level, I think it's sensational. Um, there's one thing I wanted to touch on they do, you know, do a little bit of work in terms of showing how influenced Elvis was by black artists. I think you've got Calvin mm. Harrison Jr. playing B.B. King in this movie. I love that Calvin Harrison Jr. has, has become the go-to to playing many uh, sort of, you know, historical black artists uh, on screen because he is that talented. And I'm hoping one of these days we're going to really see a meeting of his talent and the right project because he is, I think, an incredible actor. He just hasn't found that yet. Um, but those uh, black artists aren't really given much depth on their own or by, by themselves, which I would have liked from a biopic, which is touching on those elements and really sort of dive deep into that because there's a lot of complicated feelings around that. I also think a better biopic would have allowed Elvis, as you say, you know, Chris, in the latter years especially, he was not he was doing a lot of bad things and wasn't that great of a guy. It would have been nice to have this biopic be brave enough to make Elvis unlikable to, a, uh, to, to more of a degree that they, than they do here. Mm, yeah. I don't, I don't think they fully sort of pushed the envelope in that regard. Uh, but yeah, this is a very entertaining film. I enjoyed myself. The performance scenes, as you say, Helen, are incredible. And I think when the film slows down about an hour in, I really sort of began to click with it. Um, but it's mm. not particularly deep. On the surface level, into entertainment level, that's I a ride. Have fun with this. It's a yeah. real ride. It yeah. really is. And and because you know, I don't know where you where you stand on on Elvis's music. I grew up with Elvis's music because my sister was a huge Elvis fan. I mean, her her room was just 
astonishing. It was Elvis everywhere. And <laughs> Elvis was constantly blasting through the house. And I rejected Elvis for a long time because of that. And uh but you know, in later in life I have kind of come back to his music and yeah, he was he's one of the great voices. Mm. Uh there's no question about that. One Favorite of the great Elvis performers. Song? Uh, I, well, I'm really going for if I could dream at the moment, which which he sings in the '68 comeback special, and you know, it was about Martin Luther King, and and it's very much just an astonishing, astonishing performance. But there's a there's a version of an American trilogy uh, on an Elvis credits hits CD that I had from years ago, mm-hmm. uh, which isn't you can't be found in any of the greatest hits packages that's out there right now. And he just at the end of that song, because towards the end of his life, he of his career, I mean. <laughs> He died when he was 42. It's astonishing. But towards the end of his life and towards the end of his career, he kind of reinvented himself and, you know, because he had this amazing voice, this amazing instrument, and he leaned into sort of more the larger sound, the more gospel tinged elements of a big brassy big band sound that he that he did. And so an American trilogy is incredible when he hits that that crescendo at the end of the song. It's just whoa. Mm-hmm. Chef's kiss, my friend. But you know, because I, because I, I think that the movie nails the music in a really, really in in a really great way. I mean, for all Bohemian Rhapsody's faults, and I think it's a very bad film. The last twenty minutes, the Live Aid concert is tremendous, and it because it it focuses on the music, it gets Queen's music right, it gets that performance right. And so I think that the fact that it got that concert right is perhaps one of the big reasons why it made close to a billion dollars and it won Rami Malek the Oscar. And I wonder if the fact that it towards the end of the towards the end of Elvis's life, it gets the comeback special right. It mm-hmm. gets his Vegas shows right. It gets Suspicious Minds right. It gets all that stuff absolutely right. So because of that, I think it's gonna hit with people. Suspicious Minds is also a banger. That's probably my favorite Elvis. Yes, that is a that mm-hmm. is a banger. Favorite Elvis, Helen, favorite Elvis Ben? Probably also Suspicious Minds, actually. Uh, but You're very close to doing what I did at the beginning of the podcast, just going the very best of Elvis Presley. <laughs> I, I, honestly, You're so close. I, um, yeah. Well, because, I mean, I do like the bangers in this case. Like, I don't, you know, I'm not, I don't know all the deep cuts, which I would like People to. People Las point. Vegas, that's a belter. No, yes. that's not, that's not right, one of my favourites. Gonna set my soul, gonna set my soul on fire. It's like he's in the room. Austin Butler just pipped you to the post there. <laughs> There's 100,001 Elvis impersonators in the world. I have just joined their ranks. <laughs> oh, I'm going to be boring and say Suspicious Minds as well, because just when you guys mentioned it before, oh, I haven't seen idiots. this film yet. I'm very excited to see it, because um, <laughs> the stuff that I've seen of it does look wild and bazzy to the max. Um but when you guys mentioned Suspicious Minds there, which I can't even say because I love it so much. Because I love you too much. Uh, that's always a great bit. There that's are 100,002 the Elvis impersonators in this world. That's the bit that all the uncles do too early at the wedding, just like everybody always does the hey Jude. <laughs> hey Jude, 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 Jude. Everybody does it too early. you got to wait. you got to build up to that. Yeah, that's, that's an end of the night thing. Once I was at a party where my friends sang that, from they started at like two a.m. but then they sang it all night, just the na 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 bit of oh Hey Jude, all night, all night. But anyway, listen, uh, three stars, three stars then for Elvis. It's a wildly divisive movie. Uh, there are five star elements of this movie. There are two star elements of this movie. They all come together to make a big Baz Luhrmanny three. So three stars then for Elvis. But but you heard it here first, folks. Austin Butler, he's going places. That kid, he's going to the top. <laughs> 
Uh, also going to the top is the grabber, who is. <laughs> wow, that is a segue. <laughs> I, I want the best things for that guy. <laughs> who is the hero of Scott Derrickson's new film, The Black Phone, a a heart wrenching biopic about a man who just loves to grab people. He lo- he loves to grab people, and the and the evil folk who throw obstacles in his way by trying to escape his clutches. What? that about ben yeah I, I, just before i start <laughs> helen should we clarify you as our lawyer that the empire podcast does not condone condone grabbing Condo- people yes. in any capacity the empire podcast does not condone grabbing people you should <laughs> not lift people off the street uh and and stick them in your van and lock them in your basement uh or or any variation thereon <laughs> chris looks panicked chris you're looking <laughs> stricken where were you yesterday i thought we'd been clear on this Oh no! Distressingly, I feel like I feel like this has come up on the podcast before, Chris. You should know by now. Yeah, come on, Chris. Okay, we'll we'll let you run down to the basement and and let's discuss the black phone while you sort things out. Yeah. So the the black phone is the latest film from Scott Derrickson, uh, returning to the horror genre after making uh, Doctor Strange and exiting Doctor Strange in the Multiverse of Madness. And this is very much a homecoming for him. This is him uh, basically reteaming with a lot of his sinister gang. So it's a Blumhouse movie, Jason Blum producing. Uh, Scott has co-written this with C. Robert Cargill, his regular co-writer who also co-wrote Sinister. Uh, Ethan Hawke is in it, this time though, uh, as a very, very bad man known as The Grabber. It's uh, set in late 70s Denver. There's a teenager called Finney who uh, is living in a a neighborhood that is rife with uh, reports of boys being kidnapped uh, by this figure that everyone is calling the Grabber. Uh, He lives with his little sister Gwen, uh, who seems to have some kind of like possibly psychic abilities. Uh, They are living under the threat of violence from their alcoholic father. Uh, he is just trying to live his life, avoid the bullies at school, uh, but he ultimately gets grabbed by the grabber, uh, locked in a basement, and has to find his way out. It's a very stark, stark basement with a mattress in there, and the only other really defining feature is a landline phone on the wall. Uh, any Gen Zers will not know what that is, but it's like a big, well, a wall. chunky phone. I think, I think Gen Zers know what a wall is, Ben. <laughs> Uh, there's a disconnected landline phone that starts ringing and he hears the voices of the grabbers former victims who are going to try and help him escape Um, so this has a real grim setup it is kidnapping it is child murder it is ghost children Uh, and i think the thing that's most remarkable about it is that it is a film that doesn't shy away from the darkness of its premise but also has a lot of warmth to it and it to me feels like a mm. film that is about balancing that warmth that that kind of that feeling that finney has of of growing up of being a teen of having friends of having kids in the bathroom at school saying hey have you snuck in to see the texas chainsaw massacre yet uh while also yeah living under the threat of violence from his dad from other kids in the neighborhood and then from the grabber and the 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 mixing of those tones i think is expertly done uh in this film so 
Mason Thames, who plays Vinny, I've not seen him in anything before. I thought he was absolutely great in this, as is Madeline McGraw, who plays his sister. Uh, and their bond that they have is like a big part of the, the heart of this film. Even when they're separated, you feel the connection between those characters. You feel the bond that they have that has been forged in this kind of big, scary world that they kind of hold on to each other. Uh, and you feel that as well in, in the performances of the kids who are calling Finney through the phone to try and help him kind of avoid the fate that they had. It's about kids sticking together in a big, bad, scary world. So even though the premise of it sounds super dark and super bleak, and it kind of is, it's actually not that film that you might be kind of expecting. And in typical Blumhouse style, uh, I, I love their films, but they are straight up with their marketing of just like, come and see the film that goes boo. And uh, I, I would say that the black phone does go boo at various moments. And uh, Ethan Hawke mm. is very scary. He gives a, an incredible performance, actually, as the grabber uh, who has a, a horrible, scary devil mask in two parts. There's like a top half and a bottom half. And at various points in the film, sometimes he appears and he's only got the top half of the mask. Sometimes he's you can see his eyes, but the whole bottom half of his face is covered in the mask and it's like perfectly fitted mm. to Ethan Hawke's face. And they're changeable bottoms to the he, mask. Yeah, yeah, sometimes he's got a big kind of nasty grin. Sometimes he's got a big weird frown that's like scarier than the grin. So it does it does go boo, but there's a lot of substance and, and character stuff in this film. And uh, I, I admired that about it a lot. This is based on a short story by Joe Hill as well, who is um, uh, the author of Heart Shaped Box, which is possibly the scariest uh, book I've ever read, and Nosferatu and The Fireman. Um, he's Stephen King's son. He may be even scarier than his old man at times for my money. Ooh. But it does have, you know, certain kind of preoccupations that you see a lot in Hill's work, you know, uh, the abduction of children, missing children, children at risk, but also stuff you see a lot in Sim King's work. So bullying uh, and that sense, that real sense of an ecosystem that you alluded to, Ben, the the idea that there, this is a, a real breathing, living place with people interacting you know, who have their own concerns long before the grabber appears. So I, I love that kind of sense of texture and detail that this film has. And and it makes it so much scarier then when when stuff happens. You know, it's it's not an overwhelmingly gory film. There are definitely moments uh, that are unpleasant to look at, but it is more about the creep and the tension and the fear uh, that I think works so well in in Hill's books um, and, and in a lot of Derrickson's films. So yeah, I yeah. really like this. I did too. I think this might be, might be my favorite Scott Derrickson film. In in that, I think it has, you know, it's almost like the culmination of everything he's been doing. You got the the touch of the supernatural. You got really really great scares. You got fantastic character work. Uh, you know, I love Sinister. I love Doctor Strange. But this was this is one of my favorite films of the year so far. Mm. I was absolutely blown away by this. It has got, uh, if you've read the short story, it's like nine chapters long. It's almost entirely in the basement with Finney. Uh, so Derrickson and Cargill have really expanded it out. They've introduced this this character Gwen, who's one of my favorite characters of the year, just played brilliantly by Madeleine McGraw. Mason Thames is fantastic. Like the river with which he shares his name, he has surprising depths. <laughs> anyway. Mason Thames is really, really good in this. Uh, Ethan Hawke is terrifying in it as well. I think there are a couple of slight, slight missteps. Uh, it's a very funny movie, surprisingly, mm. but uh, some of the humor can feel a little bit misplaced. Almost in this, in the way Michael Bay 
sometimes will try and crowbar humor into his movies and sometimes it just feels like that tonally michael was that really necessary at this point there's a character played by james ranson uh, who is a, a grabber um conspiracy theorist who's trying to track down the grabber and i think it, i think weirdly enough the movie needed one more scene with him to work mm. it we needed to go back to this guy uh, i think one more time for it to really work because otherwise he just feels a bit out of place but otherwise the jump scares got me and then some i, oh, yeah. I yelled out loud a couple of times <laughs> in, the, in the cinema see which it's not means, just me it's you too well, in my reputation as a cool guy who has, you know, who has a resting, you know, BPM of like three whenever I'm watching horror movies because it's all so, you know, I've, I've seen it all. Nothing is new. Uh, no, the, the scares got, got me here. Um, and I just thought the character work was terrific. It's all about this bond, even though they're not on screen together for a long, long time between this this brother and sister. It's 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 more emotional and heart uh, wrenching, I would say, than I thought it was going to be. Terrific Stephen stuff. King, uh, I believe this week, described it as stand by me in hell. <laughs> which feels like quite a nice description actually <laughs> yeah that's fair I, yeah yeah i think i think that um i think that finney and gwen are as well drawn if not better drawn than the kid characters in the most recent it movies for example mm. i think i think they're just tremendously you know them instantly and by we're doing a spoiler special for this i spoke, I spoke to scott derrickson uh, earlier on in the week about this so we will be doing a spoiler special as well but one of the really interesting things that it does is that it gives him an alcoholic father, um, played by Jeremy Davies, who is also terrifying. But it it means that they're inured to the mm. Finney is inured to violence, sudden outbursts of violence. So when he gets into this, when he gets into the basement, he's almost prepared. It's almost like the grabber isn't the worst thing that he's faced that week, but he, yeah. obviously he is, but it almost is, it's almost like he isn't. So he's more prepared to face this than the other kids have been previously, even though some of those other kids might on the surface have, have had things in their, in their, you know, bows in their quiver that might have allowed them to deal with the, the grabber. Um, and it's just fascinating, just the, the back and forth and, and the, the, the creepy supernatural. Uh, element of the of the black phone ringing is terrific. Amon, what did you think? The jump scares, few and far between, though they may be, did get me. The first one in particular, the first big one, uh, uh, yeah, I had a full-bodied reaction to that. That's just... <laughs> it got me good. Uh, it's very, very effective. <laughs> Were you the guy who somebody was tweeting about saying they literally shat themselves in the cinema watching this film? Did you see that tweet? Somebody apparently let out a very loud fart uh, that sounded maybe like it might have been more and left <laughs> wow. the cinema, uh, which, oh my what gosh. an endorsement. <laughs> put that on the poster. <laughs> no, don't, don't put that on the poster. Oh, my God. The brown phone. <laughs> uh, no, I was not that guy to answer your question, Benjamin. Um, but uh, <laughs> yeah, no, it was very, very effective in that regard. And yeah, I think the best thing about this film is just the, the dread that you feel in certain situations as the film goes on. Like the way my palms were getting sweaty just when one character is trying to open the padlock... Were your knees weak, Mama Spaghetti? (laughs) (laughs) You might say so, yes. (laughs) So yeah, now I I like this one. I I like the Mark Corvin score as well. I think that worked. Yes, good score. With the the film. Uh, We gave this one four stars. Ben wrote a tremendous review of this on the Empire website. If you want to go and check it out, empireonline.com. I would concur with that. 
Me too. I might even be in the five-star camp in this one, if I'm honest with you. I wouldn't go five. I would also say that Doctor Strange is still my favourite Scott Derrickson of you. It's still my favourite Scott Derrickson film. And you can read why I think that on EmpireOnline.com right now. <laughs> wow. <laughs> Helen, would you like to plug anything? No, I'm, I'm cool. It's I'm all good. It. It's still Empire that I'm plugging. No, it's fine. It's fine. It's all good. What about Women vs. Hollywood? You haven't plugged that for a while. There's, That's true. There's... I have a book. It's called Women vs. Hollywood. It's out now in purple paperback. Ah! Nice. Purple back. So there we go. Four stars in for the Black Phone. Uh, very, very quickly this week. Uh, I will say, I don't have anything to plug necessarily, uh, except Jerry and Marge go large. So this week, Paramount Plus debuted in the UK, yet another big old streaming service. And yes, by and large, their output is TV centric. So they had a big old junket this week and you had loads of people over and they had Kevin Costner and Viola Davis and Michelle Pfeiffer and Sly Stallone and people like that all came over to talk about things like Yellowstone and The First Lady and Tulsa King, which is the the big gangster crime series with Sly Stallone that'll be debuting later on. But they do have films as well. They have access to a lot of the Paramount Library, but early days yet, not all of the Paramount Library. There's only three Mission Impossibles on there, for example, <laughs> which is interesting. Uh, but one of the movies that is brand new and is launching with Paramount Plus is Jerry and Marge Go Large. Only I've seen it, so I'm going to talk about it really, really quickly. And it stars Brian Cranston and Annette Benning. Uh, it's a real-life story about two people, a retiree, Jerry, and his wife, Marge. Uh, Jerry, once he's retired from his number-crunching role at Kellogg's, uh, is a bit lost, doesn't really know what to do with himself. Uh, He's got a real facility for numbers. And so he figures out that the state lottery can pay if it goes to a rollover and if you buy enough tickets and you play the odds, then you will actually, you're pretty much guaranteed to win. And so this begins to snowball and becomes uh, something that nets them in the end millions of dollars. And they extend it out to their town folk, the townsfolk and their friends and their family. And they all come in and they make this this business, this legitimate business that, you know, he was very aware that this was above board. We're doing nothing criminal here. This is a true story. I think they won something like $27 million in the end. And they, they formed a business and they, they you know, they were aware of being audited by the IRS, and so they made sure everything was above board. And it's this kind of very gentle, very gentle comedy drama about this older couple who begin to discover a new purpose in life, and uh, and and the feel good factor of that, and the way they pay it forward to everybody in their town, people like Michael McKean. People like Rain Wilson, who is a store owner with whom they they enter into an agreement. People like Larry Wilmore, uh, Anna Camp is in the movie as well. Uh, and there's you know there's some liberties taken with the true story, as far as I can see, given my brief and perfunctory research into it. They they butt heads at one point because it's a movie. There has to be some conflict. There is a rival faction of youngins from Harvard who are similarly Ew. gaming the system, but not with altruistic. Uh, purposes uh, and altruistic methods. And so there's a little bit of conflict between those two. But quite honestly, I could have just watched Brian Cranston and Annette Benning just enjoy life for a good old 90 minutes, which is what this is. It's 96 minutes as well. Not the greatest film you'll ever see, but, you know, hey, if you're stuck and you're flicking through Paramount Plus this weekend and you want to watch Jerry and Marge go large, knock yourself out. You'll have fun. Awesome. So what's that, three? I say three. I had had, a thoroughly... Decent time with it. All right. Hey, 
that's it for this week's Empire Podcast. Hey, extraordinary stuff. Hey, hey, what? that's it for this week's award-nominated Empire Podcast. <gasps> that's hey. right. Mm-hmm. Next week will be Empire's award-losing podcast. So we will. We, we, well, we, we are always We're Empire's all, award-losing yeah, Empire podcast. Uh, but yeah, this week we got nominated for Best Live Show at the British Podcast Awards. Maybe episode 500 is finally going to pay off for us. I still bear the psychological scars. Uh, it was a tremendous <laughs> event, but organising it nearly killed me, quite frankly. So, so please give us an award. Uh, so we're up against some really, really famous people. So we shall see what happens there. That award ceremony is at the end of July. Uh, and then next week, we're up for best podcast at the BSMEs, the British Society of Magazine Editors. Again, we don't expect to win, but we're going to long to have a hoolie. Helen, Lucky Voice is booked out. We, oh, can't, go post, we can't go post-defeat uh, post karaoke. This is a disaster. We're going I'm to have furious. to find somewhere else to go. We will find, listen, if we have to, we'll sing in the street. But as I said, <laughs> if we do win an award next week, we're going to open top bus tour this shit. We are going to be <laughs> we're going to be taking one of those tourist buses and we're going to be driving around London and we will be parading Waving the trophy people. from <laughs> the top deck. That is a Chris commitment. That is what that is. This is sticking. I love it. Not an Amon guarantee, but a Chris commitment. So there you go. Anyway, uh, join us next week for more film-related fun. We'll be joined by... I don't know. I've forgotten. I know someone who's possibly in the works, and if it happens, good, big name, you'll like, you know, everyone will go, oh, yes, that's a good name. Yes, we like that person. Uh, but it's not confirmed yet, so I don't want to say it just in case it falls through. <laughs> wow, amazing advertising. This is going to go great. I know. Come back next week when we will be surprised by our guest. Ah, how did you get in here? We will say. That's what we'll do. Anyway, until then, until that auspicious occasion, until we meet again, it is time to say goodbye to my three colleagues of such lethal cunning uh, Squadcast names, a little less delays, more connectivity, please. It's Amon Warman who has been, frankly, I don't know whether this is in tribute to the train strike, but you have been delayed today. <laughs> I have been delayed today. Uh, but, you know, I'll come out, I'll come back in a couple of times, said my piece. It's all good. And now you're going to say your piece? <laughs> that is how you end these pods, right? <laughs> Very good, Ben. Peace. Peace be unto you, you, my friend. Oh, my word. There are 100,003 Elvis impersonators (laughs) in the world. Uh, One of them is Ben Travis, a.k.a. BT Phone Home. Bye, Ben. I'll be right here. That's more like the grabber. See you outside yours, Chris. Grabber. Phone. Home. (laughs) Phone. Home. It's goodbye from Jailhouse Pod. Helen O'Hara. We can go on together because it's the end of the pod. <laughs> Toodaloo. Oh, what if I went full Elvis and turned Do this it. into like a 27 minute Don't end it. of this podcast and just got trapped in a circle? Because, <laughs> no. you know, Helen, I'm caught in a trap. I no. can't get out. No, you, you can. I believe in you. <laughs> Pick up the phone. There'll be some ghosts telling you how to get out. It'll be fine. All right. <laughs> anyway, it's goodbye from me. Le blabber, not to be confused with the grabber. Uh, I've turned around in the uh, on the grabber. You, you guys have persuaded me. Grab a and snack. Grab a snack. In fact, that's what <laughs> I'm going to do now. If you paid for it. Yes. There's only one thing I'm going to grab from now on, Helen, and that's lunch. <laughs> that's such a relief. Thank you. Thank you for listening. See you next week. Bye. <laughs> <laughs>